I'm really happy to be here today with Ian Clark, who hails from Halifax, Nova Scotia. This is my first Nova Scotia guest. So welcome, Ian, to The Meaning Code. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I met Ian via Twitter because Ian had posted a little uh, tweet, I think, in reply to somebody else's. Um, talking about an uh, interesting trajectory that he's been on in his life. And I thought it would be great for him to share that with us. And Ian, I'm hoping you can kind of go back and start with your childhood a little bit, give us some background on who you are and how you got to where you are now and what's going on in your life. Yeah, my childhood, I I. I currently residing in Halifax, Nova Scotia, but um, I was an army brat, so we moved around <laughs> a few times. Um, I was born in Germany, of all places, and then Manitoba, New Brunswick, and, and Nova Scotia. Um, my family um, were always decidedly non-believers, non-religious people. Um, my mother would always say that she did believe in God, but in a it never had any sort of importance or meaning. It never it never made seemingly an impact on our daily lives. And my grandfather from my mother's side, who was like the patriarch of our household, he was um, a firm atheist. And so that kind of set the tone for everything else throughout our family. So we never had any sort of religious upbringing or background. I can remember being at school one day um, as a kid and we were like we were celebrating Easter and the teacher handed out a piece of paper that like mentioned Jesus and the crucifixion on it. And I just, I was, I had no idea that Easter was about anything other than the chocolate eggs and bunny rabbits. And I was like, what is this about? I completely, all of that stuff was completely outside of my worldview and background. Um, I remember there was one point when I was a little kid and other kids at school told me that they did Sunday school. And I demanded that my parents take me to Sunday school and they, they indulged me for a day or two. Uh, I think we went like two Sundays and after the second Sunday, we were driving back home afterwards. And I was like, why do we have to go to this thing? It's so boring. And they were like, we are going because you have asked to go. So it was like, so does that mean we don't have to go? It's like, yes, we don't have to go if you don't want to go. So we, stopped going and that was probably the entirety of my church experience growing up was well, how being old, jealous of how other old kids. were you at that time that was probably like when i was like 10 years old oh, maybe okay. eight yeah somewhere in that range mm -hmm. old enough to kind of have ideas about things but um i still all of it was very very beyond me um but yeah, as we grew up, um, my family definitely fell onto this spectrum of non-belief to outright atheism. And as like my teenage years, the, the kind of the new atheist 
movements started kicking up and that just seemed like instinctively the place where I belonged. Um, it suddenly rather than being a nothing, it was like now I was a something and I could like identify being through um, a new atheist. And I feel like I it probably played out differently if you lived in the States, but like here in Canada, it was like religious people never really, really were a threat. They were always kind of like already peripheral. Um, and there was this, there's always a sentiment in Canada that you look down south at the crazy Americans and you see them at their work behavior and you just kind of like, so glad we're Canadian and we're not like those crazy Americans. There's this distinctive, like, we build ourselves up by looking down on um, the worst of American excess. And in that period, when I was like, let's say like 14, 16, 18 years old, there was like, this was like the Iraq war post 9-11. And there was a lot of that going around and kind of like new atheism and seeing that like how awful the American religious landscape was really kind of fed together. And a lot of like me and all my peers, we could like reassure ourselves on how like great we were by how much we weren't like the worst of America and you know, whatever went wrong in my life, it's like, it's like watching Gary Springer. It's like, it reassures you, well, I'm not that bad because I'm not as bad as those people. And that, but that, that, that was like what we did. We just sort of like kept reassuring ourselves, or at least I did that, you know, whatever is going wrong in my life, at least I'm not some crazy American religious nut job down South. Um, and the new atheist kind of experienced really came ready made to reassure you that yeah the worst parts about life were religious people that they were trying to destroy the world that they you know 9-11 was because of religion and um we we were good for feeling that like we were smarter than all those religious people who literally believe the things that they believe because of ignorance or stupidity or something like that brainwashing. Um, and somehow we were enlightened because we thought differently from them. Um, so in retrospect, I like, I can look back on my childhood and I feel like it was really like, like, I didn't have much grounding for most of the things I believed. It was all just like stories I was told. I had almost zero interactions with anyone of faith. Um, all my, if someone was religious in my life, they probably kept it to themselves and never really communicated to me. Um, we, we had one, I had an aunt and an uncle. I, I, I do still have an aunt and uncle. They're not dead, but, um, and they had moved down to the States when I was a baby. Um, and they were uh, Christians and they were religious. 
Um, and my family always kind of like talked disparagingly about them because of that, that they were religious. Um, but they never did anything to actually like have a reason to think disparagingly of them. They always were really lovely, loving aunts and uncle. And it's just, you know, I can remember not wanting to talk to them because I was convinced that they would be like bad people. But then when I did talk to them, I was like, oh no, they're actually they're really lovely and nice. So yeah, I believed that religious people were like crazy enough to the point that like it I put walls up with like extended members of my family because I just sort of assumed that they would be terrible, even though I they had never given me any reason to believe it. And yeah, that was sort of my childhood upbringing up until I basically left home. Um, as I so I, I think that the new atheists, um, they had a ready-made platform for what they were telling people, because even up to that time, all at least in the U.S., all the movies, all the TV shows, everything that you watch. If a character shows up in one of those programs who is in any way religious, you know he's going to be the bad guy. The bad guy. <laughs> inevitable. Either he's it's, crazy it's, or he's evil. And yeah. It's inevitable. And it's been that way for, I would say, at least 30 years in this country. I, I've been a Christian for 40 years. I became a Christian in 1980 when I was 32. And... Uh, I had never had any Christian background either, but at least I didn't have to carry around the package of baggage that you had to carry around in your head, <laughs> you know, from the, from the, um, from the way that the media always portrayed Christians and, and movies and all of that, because in 1980, I don't think they cared much one way or another. They didn't mm -hmm. portray religious people as being great, but they also didn't portray them as being world destroyers. But mm -hmm. in, in the intervening 30, 40 years, I would say it's gotten more and more and more that way. So I mean, like uh, I moved to Halifax when I was 12 years old. And like Halifax is got to, is probably one of the more secular parts of North America. Um like we have, there's some like connection to old like mainline denominations and Catholic church here, but um, I don't think they've been a huge part of the landscape or mm -hmm. at least the night since the 1950s. Um, you don't generally, like this is not a place where you run into religious people. Um, so the like, in those years, um, and we're we're always like we're very like even since the nineties, we've been a very like pro LGBT kind of community. This is like mm -hmm. one of the local focus points for that. And I can just like even in high school, the atmosphere was one of like the only portrait of someone who had Christian face would be like Westboro Baptists. Mm -hmm. Holding up signs and protest at soldiers' mm -hmm. funerals, kind of like that was the example 
um, there wasn't really any sort of example present to me. Um, knew that my aunt and uncle um, were religious. It wasn't like assumed that they were maybe not as bad as Westboro Baptist, but they were somewhere in that camp. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had to be handled with like kid gloves so they didn't like go off on us or something. So, mm-hmm. um, but so by this time you're 18 or so? Yeah. I mean, I would say like I sort of, um, I know I forget the tweet exactly that we connected on, but um, it was about this new podcast about new atheism and what I found really like I can remember my early like 19 20 years old um, being in like following this movement and um, you know I I think I absorbed Richard Dawkins first and I thought like suddenly like you read that book and you're like you kind of always knew you were better than religious people, but he really convinced you you were better than religious people. And I was like, wow, I must be so smart for like believing these things. I am like the smartest person going. I'm I'm up there with Oxford University professors just because I think the same way as him. Um, and then I started reading and watching Christopher Hitchens as you like you know he's probably in retrospect the worst of the four horsemen and like his actual like arguments but like he just like so beautifully like spins debates and things and he just speaks so eloquently and you're just like i want to be like that guy that's like when you're a young adult trying to find your way and it's like you have this example of someone who's just so seems so confident and have such a presence on stage and it's just like uh, i want to be like this guy so much um but probably sam harris a third of the big three that i followed who i got into last um he always had like a little bit of tinge where he was like open to like meditation and some slightly more spiritual, not that you would probably use those words, kind of like um, exploration. Um, he thought there was like good things within Buddhism that could be mined and brought into a secular space and, and given the atheist treatment. And I came to him last of those three and even by that point in my like early 20s I definitely I think the looming sense that actually I wasn't a University of Oxford professor and that my life was not that level of comfortable and like I wasn't that brilliant I wasn't this you know amazing person who the whole world was going to fall over themselves in order to keep praise and award us on and I kind of like, you know, I discovered adulthood and just sort of like, yeah, things are harder. 
than I sort of always imagined. And into that space, you know, there was no part of me that wanted to give up atheism. I held to it really, like, firmly. But at the same time, I was like, I feel like I need something else going on here. Um, and, like, I can, so crystal clear, I can just remember, like, you know, going to sleep at night and just, like, this existential dread and fear of death and things just, like, looming so heavily on me. And it's like you get up in the morning and you like have to put on the happy atheist face, but it's just like feeling like I could never accept the like make your own meaning. I could never accept the like, you know, I'm just going to put family or something at the center of my being and find all the purpose that I need out of it. It always felt hollow creating my own sense of self-worth and it, and I just felt empty and when I was following Sam Harris and his openness to like exploring meditation I think I took my cue from him and I was like okay I'm gonna explore meditation and I followed tried to pursue some Buddhist um, teachings and things like this it was always my Going after Buddhism, I never wanted to renounce atheism, though. And the two, as much as like people kept trying to sell me that Buddhism was a, was an atheist religion, it was like it doesn't actually work together, and the two two clash. And I'd have these conversations with people, and they would spin jargon at me and they would like talk about things and we'd have these a conversation with someone who i really wanted to like learn from but then he would tell me that he believed that some goddess descended from the sky and saved sailors on a ship and i'm like well that's that sounds not atheist to me and it was always a fight as much as like I felt like I wanted Buddhism to be the thing that gave me some peace in my life. I wanted Buddhism to be the thing that would like ground me and lead me somewhere at every point. It just felt like I was in conflict here with something that didn't really have good atheist arguments for the things that it wanted to believe and always kind of like wanted to slip into this by the side uh, very God or spiritual um, kind of framework. And you go for some meditative teaching and suddenly you're talking about seven levels of heavens and hells and moving between them and um, ghosts and goddesses and things like this. And, and, and all of this stuff just seems to always come packaged together. Um, so, I mean, I kept trying for like two, three, four years. I was still like following this stuff, trying different denominations of Buddhism. And, and like, it felt like this is my only choice. There's like crazy religious people. And then there's Buddhism light with represents like religion light. And it's supposed to be atheist. 
that if I can just find the right group, the right teaching, I would be able to make these two things mesh together. But they never really did. Even at, um, I landed finally on like Soto Zen as the most atheist feeling of all the Buddhist branches. But even there, it's still like, it, it didn't really want to mesh with athe atheism. Um, and that firm belief that there was no God was something I wasn't going to let go of. Um, I wanted the goods that religion could give me, but I never wanted to actually accept any sort of authority that was like different from my own self, even though I knew even back then that like my uh, putting myself at the center of my universe was an extremely emptying feeling for me. It was always something that um, gave me nothing but dread. As I said, I would still go to sleep at night or in moments of panic, just feel like I had nothing. And I was just floating on air because there was nothing for me to grip onto. It was all it, all of life ended up feeling very like a haze that would just wash over me as I moved from one thing to the other. Well, so during during this time when you were going through all this kind of inner trauma, were you at the same time uh, going to school or working a job, or or were you pretty much immobile? I was going. I was going. No, I wasn't immobile. Like as like I would wake up put on the best face I could put on and kind of keep going through life. Um, and, you know, I don't think most people would have like assumed that there was anything going on with me. Um, it's See, like that's I was very interesting. I was Everybody needs to listen to that because we think we can tell where people are at by looking at them or by interacting with them. And um, I've told the story before about my father coming to faith just before he died. And, and he said, I've wanted this for so many years, but all those yeah. years that he says he wanted it. When I looked at him, he was a vociferous atheist mm -hmm. outside. That's the impression he was giving, but inside yeah. he was hungry. Right. That sounds exactly like me. It's just sort of like, um, you're serving this space where, you're mocking religious people. Um, you sound completely confident in your non-belief. Um, and you would like, you know, I would try to make other people not believe. I would assert with authority that like belief in God was foolish. Um, I still had all my even though I was exploring things, I still had all these talking points. And, and there was nothing that felt better to me at that point than like finding someone else who didn't believe and just like join together and reminisce on how much it still felt good to say we're better than the religious people. Um, and I don't think I gave generally any impression to other people. It's, it's when I was alone in my apartment lying on the floor feeling dead inside that's where the dread would hit me it wasn't something that i'd let other people into um because as far as i was concerned the only 
appropriate conversation you could have about faith or spirituality was with other people would be to mock the very idea of it itself. Um, I actively cultivated an atmosphere where talking about God was something you couldn't do. You know, in retrospect, I'm like, it's probably the thing I most wanted to do. Uh, I can even recall moments where I did, like, at a party or something, come across someone, and for some reason, the fact that they were in any way religious or spiritual would come up, and there would be, like, I can recall this feeling of wanting to talk to them, wanting to engage with them and ask them questions, but I couldn't do that because I was the very person saying, you can't have these conversations. You can't talk to people about the things they believe in most deeply because that's how you get ridiculed. Um, that's how I ridicule other people. Um, so it's kind of like I keep telling myself it's not safe to talk about these things until I really believe it's not safe to talk about these things. Um, so like this conversation we're having right here, you talked to me when I was like 25 years old and there's would be nothing more off-putting to me than having this conversation. So, yeah. Well, what, what you just said there was such a great illustration of the verse where Christ says, judge not lest you be judged <clears throat> because in the way that we judge others ends up being the same way that we judge ourselves. And it's inevitable because mm -hmm. if we're always looking down our noses at a certain kind of person, and then we realize, wait, that's the best kind of person to be. And I'm not that now I'm judged. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it really messes us up when we judge other people because when then we put ourselves under that same judgment and yeah, it's a very good illustration. Well, so my heart is just bleeding for you right now. <laughs> I, when you said you would, would lay on the floor of your apartment in utter despair, I mean, what a, my, my heart just breaks over that. Um, how old were you at that time? Like 25? I mean, this period, I would say like 25 is about the moment I kind of stopped trying with Buddhism. Um, my whole early 20s was kind of like this period where I was, I flirted with it. Um, and there's probably like two, three years in there where I was making really firm attempts. I really wanted this to work, but it wasn't working. Um, and then after 25, I kind of, Everything in my life just didn't feel like it was working. Um, and I said, I need to change the scenery. So I moved to the UK. Um, and I kind of didn't, I, it wasn't like something I thought about. I think I just like, once I moved, I just, I stopped trying Buddhism entirely. I just sort of like, that was something I was doing, but it wasn't working and I don't feel a real need to pick it up again now that I've changed locations and I'm trying to reorientate my life 
around something else now. Um, and yeah, this period of, I think I moved into a period of like, new atheism had kind of already started to die by this point. Um, its internal conflicts had already like ripped itself apart. It wasn't, we were kind of, the world was over um, that drama. Uh, and I just sort of just kind of moved into a general sort of none of the above category where I still wanted, um, I still wanted something more, but I just kind of didn't think it was going to happen. And I, just sort of continued to feel dead inside, even though, and I, yeah, as I said, lying around at night, feeling existential dread, but you have to just kind of keep going through work. At points and pieces, like I would explore something. I remember I decided Quakers were close enough to you know, a little quasi atheist community or something. So I like I went to a Quaker meeting once in hopes that there would be something there. Um every once in a while I would see a new Buddhist community or something and I would try going to one of their meetings, but nothing ever stuck more than like one go. Um felt like a non event. Um and I would say I, I largely just sort of, you know, to be brutally honest, like sort of tried to fill the void mostly with um, more humanistic pleasure than anything else. Um, I spent probably this period of time just, you're supposed to enjoy life. I moved, I was in a whole new country. Um, and that's sort of what I was going for and what I was doing. Um, but that dread, that like darkness that seemed to always live over me, like never really left me. Um, it was always there. Even if I was having a fairly good period of my life, it was always just like everything is just like not how it's supposed to be. Everything just feels for me um and i i think like moving into this stage like i can like i i reconciled with my aunt and uncle and i never really thought of them as crazy to the same extent anymore i think i realized that they were actually like they are good people um so there was that little bit of a break but I feel like I can remember a period of time where I had like picked up a Bible um, and I read the gospel of Matthew um, and I immediately, I like, I thought this is good stuff. I kind of wish this was an atheist religion so I could try it out. Um, which made no sense, but 
because I still like much like Buddhism. Like I, I think that was like when I went and checked out the Quakers. I was like, I want this to be something else. Um, I'm not willing, no matter what happens, to put something other than myself at the center of the universe. Um, and that's just a non-negotiable. Um, so I can remember, I, 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 I read the Gospel of Matthew and I thought, like, this is brilliant stuff, but there's too much God in this for me. Um, I can't make that leap and I put the, um, and I didn't read anymore. Um, I also, I finished the gospel of Matthew and I had no idea that there was like three more gospels telling the exact same story. And I started, I opened Mark and I was like, wait, this is the same story again. What? I can't. Who writes a book with the same story four times in a row? Ugh, what a waste. So that also played a part. I was, I, I started to read Mark and I, I was like, no, oh, this sounds too boring. So, but yeah, I just sort of kept through this phase all the way into my thirties, really. Actually, um, one way or another, maybe pursuing a bit of atheism, maybe wanting something else to be real. I think I, I, I briefly flirted with um, stoicism for a while. Mm -hmm. I was like, that seems like a thing. Um, but all of them didn't really work. They all just sort of felt like nothing. Um, I think I had a policy that like, life is about suffering. You're just gonna be here, suffer for a while. And at some point I'm going to die. And that's what life is. It's not really, you shouldn't expect more than that. If you get a brief bubble of joy for some reason, savor it because those bubbles don't last. Um, and the despair and chaos of the world will eventually consume it. So, and that was my philosophy in life. Um, there is no meaning. There is no purpose. There's just the decay of the universe. Is. So um, I was a happy person. Well, I mean, you obviously are not alone. There are so many people that are at that same place. And, yeah. And I mean, the, the, the idea of, and it goes back all, I mean, I think it was Democritus who said there is nothing but atoms and the void. You know, that's a happy thought. <laughs> so um, the no meaning, no purpose thing, there are so many people that, that believe that. And I've heard more than once this idea that uh, the earth is just a meaningless rock hurtling through space, going around another meaningless burning rock. And, and, uh, and the whole thing is pointless. And life yeah. is hard, and it sucks, and we suffer, and and then we die. I mean, yeah. I, I hear that all the time. So you, you were not alone, but you probably felt alone because you weren't willing to talk about this with other people. You didn't know that other people were feeling the same way. Yeah, no, that you're you're nailing, you're hitting the nail there. Um, it's. I don't think I was that alone. 
and a lot of the things I was feeling, I don't think that I was that of an exception. Um, it felt like, it felt like no one was allowed to be honest about what they were feeling. Um, and like, it may be kind of bitter against a lot of things. Um, thing that people hold to and they cling to and they like put forward is like this is some sort of like good thing that can drive my life and it just felt like that just feels like a lie to me um and i and i kind of i just feel like you're not being honest in holding to it um i think his name's like Pete Townsend there's like a philosopher from like Australia or something and I like I ended up like appreciating his work because I was like you feel at least honest to me on the things that you say and believe even if it takes you to some weird spots but um, yeah that was I think you're definitely right it's just sort of you feel very alone, even though there's probably a lot of people around you who feel the same way, because everyone's putting on the face of being happy and together. Um, and it feels like other people are okay and they're enjoying life and they're seemingly happy, well-adjusted individuals who are okay with meaninglessness of the universe. Um, and based on as much as possible, but on the inside, I'm screaming, like, how can you deal with this? How can you stare into the void and Okay, I'm starting to lose your audio. Maybe your, oh. your headphones need to be adjusted a little bit. There we go. Okay. So, so at this point, you're still in the UK? In your yes, and, and what what were you? I, if I can ask, what were you doing there? Um, just working through this whole period. Um, uh, I mostly was working in hospitality stuff like this. Um, I um, and what went, year? What year was? I, I was in the UK for like five years. Um, I think. So from like, like 31 in my age, um, I'm 37 now. I'd have to do that as to what uses were. Um, oh, so you weren't there during during COVID? No, I moved back before that. You've been back um, before COVID. Okay, that was my, my, I wondered about that because I, I knew that the two countries had different sets of restrictions and wondered how all that played into things but yeah no i knew i still had a fair number of like contacts and friends during covid period so i can remember during the hard, hard lockdowns i would be like doing my zoom calls with people back in the uk and scotland mm -hmm. um and being like how's your lockdown going and finding the 
the auditor stories where they all stand outside and crack for the NHS every single day has been like, yeah, we don't do that in Canada, that's for sure. Um, but at this point I had, I decided um, I had I had been in a long-term relationship in, in Scotland. We moved there um, and then very unexpectedly um, my partner just died one night um oh it wasn't it wasn't like anything planned um uh like apparently some genetic defect in their heart um and they no one knew about it um so we just went to bed one night and in the morning um they were dead and we kind of, I never had anyone close to me die up to that point. Yeah, it was most surreal experience of my life up to that point. Um, and afterwards, I got to a point of feeling okay, but I still, I was just like, I don't think I can stay here anymore. I think I have to go back to Canada. Um, I need to be near family. Um, and it just felt to stay there. Um, so I, because previous to that, I think my plans, if you had asked me as I, if this was it, I was staying in Scotland. Um, um, I still love Scotland. I think it's an amazing place. Um, but I moved back. Um, and then. Um, so yeah, I started living in Halifax again. At some point I started a new relationship. Um, and that went, um, but he was American and I was not, um, and COVID hit. And he became trapped um, in America and I became trapped in Canada. And so he was in Seattle at the time. And at some point, Amer America never cared um, during COVID times about other people coming into the country. So, but Canada wouldn't let him come into Canada so we decided that I would go to America, we would get married, and then he could come back to Canada with me. Um, so I flew to Seattle and we got married. And um, very strangely, 
um, like this is the night after we've been to City Hall and we signed the papers and we got married. And we were just kind of like walking around outside in this weird landscape of the city that neither one of us lived in. Um, and during COVID times and um, just sort of walking around and he had this weird moment and he was suddenly like racked with guilt about things and was becoming very emotional. And I, we were like, we were alone in a park and I don't really know why or how, but like he just had so much guilt and I didn't know what to really say to him, but I, I found myself suddenly like, I don't know if I had just like retained from all those years ago, reading the gospel of Matthew or whatever, but I found myself suddenly telling him about the grace that Jesus offered. And I explained to him, even though I was definitely not a Christian, but for some reason I found him, I explained to him the gospel in that moment. And that seemed to like stir something in him. And that was kind of the end of it at that moment. But then we eventually, we did get back to Canada and maybe a month later, we've been acting really, really weirdly and kind of and emotional. And then finally he and we kind of confronted each other about this and like I think I have to tell you something and I was like what is it and I, I expected like something really horrific um, was going on but it was just it's like I think I've become a Christian and at that moment I was mostly just like relieved <laughs> it's like okay I thought this was something really really out there and awful but okay you're having some weird religious thing that's fine move on um but he um got in contact with some people and they because he was looking for a church to go to and they finally recommended a church to him um, but he didn't drive. I did all the driving. Um, and it was on the other side of town. And he's like, can you drive me to this church? And I said, sure, I'll drive you to this church. But of course, I was like, I'm not going to sit in the car the whole time. So I'll come in with you. So I went into this church. And it was almost immediately... Like it was the first time in my life I ever interacted with people of Christian faith 
who were letting their faith hang out. They like there was no hiding what people were doing there, who they were. It's like we are we're talking about Jesus, we're talking about the gospel, we're talking about salvation, about the plan of new creation, and everyone was just very honest about it. But they were also wonderful people. Everything from my childhood, from my young adult life, that these are like going to be the worst people possible. Upended, and that part of me that had always been like treating religious people like you watch Jerry Springer, and it's like I'm not them, so at least I'm okay. Was suddenly like, no, I'm not okay, but they have something that is okay. And I spent a year going to church every single Sunday, but not believing any of it, but just still kind of like floored by who these people were and how they treated me and how they in the world and who they were. And it just sort of, yeah, it, of anything. Um, so I kind of um, spent like a year going to church, not believing it, and I think I made the change where I said, even though I don't believe this is true, I want this to be true. Because what this is is more beautiful than anything else I know. For me, was a position I found myself taking that what I've known up to that point just seemed so ugly in comparison to what I was seeing now. point where I had this head knowledge and I like I had heard enough and seen enough that I I understood what the gospel message was and I understood what I couldn't know of everything I had been clinging on to that I had this person that was me and if I let go, that person wouldn't exist anymore. 
I wasn't staring into a void anymore. I was staring into this endless sea of love, but I couldn't let go because I would just be lost in it. And I fought that for a long time, just sort of wanting to believe, but not willing. And I just wouldn't make a turn to believe. And then very unexpectedly, I just sort of finally found myself and I I was all alone and I just really sat down and I did finally pray and, and I just asked Jesus if he was there and if he would help me and it was like suddenly being there was someone who had been patiently waiting for me my whole life and really looked back since then it's it's um that was about two years ago at this point um and yeah i've been on this journey ever since and as much as like I still have ups and downs um, in like my mental health, it's I will have that feeling of lying on my apartment floor, feeling dead inside in a way that I used to feel. This thing that I thought was just like pervasive to being alive in existence as um, things are difficult sometimes but they're not it doesn't feel like the universe is without purpose or meaning and I'm not staring left staring all alone with myself at the center of the entire cosmos and everything else just being a void um, yeah <laughs> Um, that's, that's amazing. So what, what kind of a church did you find there? You, you said there aren't very many churches in Halifax or. I mean, there is a good scattering, as I said, like mainline and Catholic churches scattered mm -hmm. about, um, we have our Halifax has kind of got a old Victorian feel in the downtown. Mm -hmm. Um, so you can see big churches, that look fancy. Um, but church I ended up going to uh, was um, they're now non-denominational. Um, they used to be open brethren, um, but they sort of made that switch from open brethren to non-denominational um, before we got there. Um, and you know, vaguely, most people's, like my mother asked me, what kind of church are you going to? And I said, non-denominational. And she's like, oh, so Baptist. I'm like, we're not Baptist. <laughs> but 
Yes, there's some similarities. Um, well, so what, so, what does your family think about all this? I mean, have you talked with your family at all, or have they have they noticed anything? Or um... like, as I said, my mother remained always kind of like mildly the most spiritual of all of them. Um, she doesn't really believe um, and she's attended uh, some services with me and we had a discussion. She find, she told me she finds the concept of grace kind of offensive. Um, mm -hmm. She's like, I don't think that people who do bad things should be forgiven. Um, which yes, grace can be very offensive to people, but um, really, I don't know why you think you're so wonderful yourself. I mean, I, that's probably my position previously. So, um, my grandfather, the patriarchal atheist of the family, remains steadfast and he throws like condescending and mocking jibes. Um, but he's also, he's in his 90s now and kind of moving into a phase of life where he seemingly doesn't even. Um, I knew, I know he's more knowledgeable than he is at this point. Um, some of the dialogues, like he doesn't understand some things and like I know that at one point you were smarter than this on these subjects mm -hmm. so um, it feels it feels somewhat his jibes don't hurt I'll say that his jibes um, they just they just feel sad generally um, and his son who is the um uncle who was a Christian even when I was growing up, you know, um, him and his wife have had a lifetime of witnessing and preaching to him and trying to reach him. I, I know that there's nothing that they would love more than to see him um, make a confession, but especially as he's in his 90s, because, um, you know, he's He's still really a wonderful person. And I, you know, I admire him very, very greatly. I still admire him in many ways, um, especially when I was a little kid. Um, um, There's probably no one when I was a little kid who I wanted more to be like than to be like him. So it's a, it's a point of prayer or those in our lesson are my family who pray, but. Um, well, I think there's always yeah. hope. Like I uh, said, my father became a believer maybe five months before he died. <clears throat> and uh, he'd lived his whole life angry. And he was angry because <clears throat> He had had a grandmother who was like super fundamentalist, religious. I'm, 
was she Seventh Day Adventist or something? It, it isn't the denomination that makes a difference, really. It was her own approach. She had this idea that everybody had to do things a certain way. And if you didn't do things mm -hmm. a certain way, you were going to go to hell. And she would line all the little kids up in a row and she would tell them, now you have to do this and this and this and this, or you're going to go to hell. And and when my dad was a little kid, that just frightened him and turned him away. And then he never wanted anything to do with any religion after that. And so, mm -hmm. um, so he was angry his whole life about a lot of things. And, and then uh, after he turned to faith, he wanted to talk to my pastor. And my pastor said, after that talk with him, he said, he said, I am totally convinced that your father has turned to faith. He says, I've never heard anybody use the name of Jesus more tenderly than your father. And, and that it was something that just happened, like literally overnight. He was in a hospital and I had to pray for him because in this hospital, um, they would tie him into the bed at night because he had a tendency to get up during the night and start walking around and carrying the oxygen cart with him and all that kind of stuff. And they mm -hmm. were afraid he was going to fall and hurt himself. So they would tie him into the bed and he was experiencing something like they called it Alzheimer's, but I knew at the time it wasn't Alzheimer's because he was, he went into the hospital perfectly fine. And then two weeks later, he's like, in the head kind of crazy. So I knew it wasn't that. I knew it was something else. I finally did some research and discovered that his electrolytes had gotten out of balance. And so he had a sort of dementia that came from that. Sure. But anyway, he's in the midst of this dementia and terrified because they're going to tie him into this bed. And he was a big, strong master sergeant guy. You know, I told you I grew up as an army brat. And so I prayed for him. I just put my arms around him and I said, Daddy, I just want you to know you're not alone. God is with you. And I have to go now and take mom to the motel and we'll come back tomorrow morning. And when I came back the next morning, he was wreathed in smiles and he still couldn't talk, but he's pointing at the ceiling and smiling. And <laughs> he couldn't tell me what it was he was experiencing because he couldn't talk at that point. But the chaplain came into the into the into the hospital room inviting everybody to come to the sunday service and my dad's like yeah let's go let's go he's like motioning he wanted to go and i was very surprised because the chaplain was black and my father was very racist towards blacks but we went down to the chapel <clears throat> the pastor they, they sang a few hymns and all during the hymns my dad is just sobbing then the pastor starts preaching and my father's listening so avidly. And after the message, the pastor said, okay, now we're going to have communion. And for those of you that are hooked up to oxygen and everything, you can stay in the pews and everybody else can come down to the communion railing. My dad's tugging at me. No, I want to go down there. So, so I get all his gear. We go down to the communion railing. We kneel down at the communion railing. And the pastor comes around with the cup and the bread and my father reaches out for it and he turns to me and he says, you don't know how many years I've been waiting for this. His mind and his voice were clear as a bell at that point. It's just like, wow. 
you know, after all these years of, of trying to share with him, being rebuffed, being called every name in the book and all of that, God did the work on his own. He didn't need me. <laughs> that is amazing. So, and then afterwards, he said what had happened was in the middle of the night, he had had this dream or vision or something where he saw the entirety of the creation of the universe and the development of mankind. He saw the whole thing in this dream or this vision or something. And he knew without question that Jesus Christ was God and master of the universe. And it just like came to him in that moment. So God can do it. He can do it any way he wants. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I completely, I'm not like, it feels with members of my family. Like sometimes it becomes a lot. Um, there are moments where it really breaks me down. Um, but I hold to that, that God can do anything that, that no one is beyond God's saving power. And I, I like to think that, you know, as his jibes have become more harmless as the years go on, that, that a miracle will happen and that he will come to believe. Because I have to say, of all, all the people I've known in my life, there is no one I would probably be more overcome with joy to see him at the end of everything standing there with me of everyone else who had believed ready to meet Jesus I feel like I just don't want to go on without him I guess is the thing so I really do have you ever told him how much you admire him Yes, I have. Um, we've had we've had moments where I kind of express this level of like how much I admire him. He starts crying, and then I cry, and everyone cries. And it's a great moment, but uh, um, I think. It feels like a like an exercise in patience, mm -hmm. I guess. When you're dealing with someone who, and there's multiple people like this in my life at this point, who like God is stirring somewhere in their lives, something's going on that that your love, God's love, not, this isn't returning void, and yet they don't believe. Um, and not everything happens instantaneously. So, um, well, I mean, you can see in your own life that 
that I'm sure that if you look back now, you can see in your own life that all those years that you didn't believe and that you resisted, that God is actually finding a way to use those years in your life and in the lives. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like as I, like when I finally did repent and turn to Jesus and ask him into my life, it was so overwhelming, like this sense of there and had always been waiting and had always been present and participating. And, you know, I look back, like when I read the gospel of Matthew and it blew me away, but I wouldn't believe, or when my aunt and uncle had witnessed to me as a child, but I, I stayed steadfast and thinking that they were terrible people for this. Um, and there was other moments in my life where I just, I, I had felt God's love on me, but I kept running away from it and avoiding it and keeping it cut off. And all those moments, when it came to that moment, I could see all of those steps leading up to where I was then and that they had made that change and they had been a part of this journey. Um, I feel it's hard to explain all of it. Like there's some way I wish, like even as much as I gave you a fairly long conversation about, you know, where my journey had gone, there's just so many like little tidbits that I think back on of like here when I was standing on this beach and I, I just felt such a complete like love and I didn't know where it was coming from but I I wanted there to be somebody who loved me like that like these little moments all throughout that at the moment of turning to Jesus were crystal clear in that path and seeing what God had done but still felt at the time when they were happening, like these are isolated incidents. So yeah, I agree with you. I think you don't know. It's hard for us to see the wonderful like tapestry that God is moving in people's lives. Um, he's the only one who has the bird's eye view to see the whole thing as it's unfolding. So yeah. I heard an interesting analogy today. I was listening to a video of Bernardo Castrop talking. Do you know who he is? No, maybe I, I, I would recognize his work, but he's terrible with names. He's, he's some kind of a, I think he calls himself an analytical idealist. Something like that. He's a philosopher. Um, he's got a very interesting mind. You wouldn't call him a traditional Christian or anything like that, but but he does look at the world through a lens that includes the possibility of something outside of ourselves. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. But he was saying it for any of us to think, he, he says the greatest slavery is to believe that we're responsible for the whole world. When you put yourself at the center 
then you're kind of making yourself responsible for the universe. And he said, that's really the greatest slavery there can be. And he said, it's a little bit like being a blossom on an apple tree and thinking that you're responsible <laughs> to tell the apple tree how many apples it's supposed to make every year and how many seeds and, you know, and, and the little blossom is like unwilling to let itself wither and die because it thinks that it's the most important thing. So then it never becomes an apple. It never bears fruit, you know, never, never makes the seed it's supposed to make to, to carry itself on in the future because it's so determined that it's going to be in control of everything. And I thought that was a pretty interesting mm. analogy to, to think of the way we can get when we make ourselves the center of our world. Yeah. And that sounds exactly like where I had been at. Um, I think you've expressed it that you expressed it very eloquently there. It's, it's, it's like this staring into the void that I always did growing up and then through most of my life. It's like the only thing I have was myself. I'm the center of all of this. And if good things are going to happen, it has to be because of me. It has to be because of the things that I've done. I have to create this world of good for myself or there's no hope. There's no one else here I can rely on. There's nothing else that's going to save me here. Everything has to be me. And I think even in the early days, as soon as I came out of new atheism, as soon as I started like exploring religious ideas it was because i had come to the conclusion that there may be nothing but i'm not going to save myself i'm it's beyond me to tell the apple tree how many apples to produce i can't do that um and that's why i wanted something else because it just felt distinctly like I can't be the author of my own salvation here. So something else has to do it. Um, and in those moments, I think that's what I found so compelling about when I read the gospel of Matthew, even though I rejected it, it's just kind of like, for the first time, there was the sense that something else might actually offer me a path forward, that there would be something else that could save me, but I wanted to renounce myself in the center. So, um, and in Buddhism, it just felt like great, I can just stop caring about being saved. And then that solves the problem. As long as you don't care, then it's fine. Um, which, you know, standing on the other side of it feels like, well, that was a terrible idea. You shouldn't just like renounce caring about all of this. But at the time that felt like this is the best solution. It's just like, drive yourself cold to all feelings of 
wanting things to work out. So, but. So you're working in Halifax now. Are you still in the hospitality area or are you doing something else? Yeah, I'm still in hospitality, though now I've moved to owning rather than working exclusively. So, um, yeah, uh, I opened a restaurant like a year ago, exactly, which was um, like little story because I came to believe in at some point I I sort of just had this like, okay, believe in you, Jesus. I believe you are king of the universe. What do I do now? Like, what's the next step? Um, and I prayed this. And the, I'd always like wanted to open a restaurant and it just felt distinctly like, um, but it wasn't like, it was something I always wanted to do, but I had like a number of things in mind of like, where am I supposed to go? But I prayed very intently one night that I wanted some clarification on what to do next. And the very next day I went into work and this opportunity to open a restaurant opened up. So I said, all right, I feel like that's, you're going to deliver an answer. I'm going to, going to go for it so we're, we're doing this journey right now of being an entrepreneur and owning a business um, and seeing how that goes which has been all sorts of like its own learning experiences and an intense degree of learning to trust in God's provision no matter how like this is something I could definitely never ever done before i think the if i had to rely on my own feelings of advocacy in order to accomplish things like i could never have taken on a project this big because it just would have been beyond me i would have only seen my limitations here and it's i still intensely see my limitations in all of this but Despite that, I can trust in somebody else. I can trust that there is a God who has my back. And even if this business fails spectacularly, um, a slight in any way on who I am in God's eyes, and I can rest in his, in who he sees I, I am. So... It gives me the freedom to actually do these things and the joy to enjoy this journey as I'm on it, regardless of where things go forward from here. So that, that's so well said. So um are you the cook? I am the cook and business operator. So yeah. Uh -huh. um, and what kind uh, of a restaurant is it? We are a German restaurant. We do classic spitzels and pretzels and things like this so, um, in the heart of downtown Halifax. So it's called PMQ Restaurant, which is named after the Canadian military housing they would build for families. It's, it's um, called what? PMQ. PMQ. Uh, so it's um, when back in the beginning of the story, when I lived in Germany, um, as an army brat, 
We lived in PMQ housing, so um, builds this style of housing for its soldiers and their families. Um, and I liked it because it was my connection to Germany, living in these housings, but also it was, uh, it felt like it was an exercise in intentional community building. It was building homes and communities for its people. And I felt like that's what I wanted this restaurant to be, was an exercise in intentional community building. So in which by those metrics, it's been a round wonderful success. I feel like lots of people have been able to engage and it's been very rewarding in ways that everyone can come together and we can share. Um, but yeah, PMQ is the name of the restaurant. So. Wow. I, I never, ever would have guessed that you would open a German restaurant, but that's like. Super- I never guessed that either. So. <laughs> well, that's one of the great things I think about following Christ is it, it's a never ending adventure. If when, when you're really, when you're really leaning in and trusting, it becomes a never ending adventure. I mean, you're very young in the faith yet. I've been a Christian for 40 years and there are times when I really lean in and trust. And there are other times when I kind of pull back and start trying to do life on my own and things don't work out so well, but yeah. I'm really leaning in and trusting. It's a never ending adventure. And, you know, as a result, I've just done so many things in my life that I never ever dreamed I would have been involved in. And a hundred percent. Yeah. So I'm very excited about your future. You've been talking for about an hour and a half now, so I think we we better wind it up. But anytime you want to talk in the future, if you have something new that you've been thinking about, I would love to talk to you. The way you express yourself with such depth and clarity, it almost makes me think that you should be a writer. But um, right now you're busy getting your business off the ground, so I won't hassle you yeah. for a while. <laughs> my my old pastor said I was doing lunch with him, um, and he 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 said to me he was like, you know, you should like consider taking seminary courses or something. And I was like, do you have any idea how little time I have? I'm I'm not going to. We can talk about things in a few years' time when I mm-hmm. have some space to myself. But yeah, I just wanted to like your your comment about you know once you start following christ this like amazing journey that you go on it's it's a hundred percent so many ways that my life felt so drastically one way and now it has gone in a completely different direction um i was actually i was having this conversation with a friend of mine earlier about she asked me are you an introvert or an extrovert and I was like, I don't think I like that question because I don't think I believe in that anymore. I think my whole life, I would have told you I was an introvert, that I get my rest by being alone and by having no one involved in my life. And that was where I was most comfortable. And suddenly finding myself surrounded by community and people and there's nothing i want more 
than to be intensely engaged with folks. And I can't, like, it feels, it feels suffocating now to be on my own. And I would 100% say I'm probably an extrovert now. But the whole question suddenly feels very like, no, I don't think I agree with that anymore. I think this is, this is whatever it is. It's, we're not, I don't think anyone's meant to be alone. I don't think anyone's meant to be cut off, even though many people feel that way. So, um, I, I, my life is just seemingly, I never know what's going to happen next and it can be exhausting, but it's never been more rewarding or fulfilling than it has been now. So I'm just excited to keep going and see where things go next. So, Well, I'm so happy that you took the time to make that little comment on Twitter because it opened up this whole world to me and, uh, and I think it will open up a whole world to a lot of other people who listen. So I really appreciate you spending the time with me, Ian. And well, this is best. I don't usually get to spend this much time talking about my um, testimony and journey thus far. Um, so I, I really appreciate it. It's, it's been lovely. Thank you so much. Yeah, you have a great week. You too. Have yourself a lovely, I guess, mid day there where you are so yes <laughs> good evening All to right. you in halifax Good evening. yeah bye-bye